0: Coughing off mic like a pro—that's the kind of a quality audio skills you get here on One Two Hundred. All right, welcome to One Two Hundred, the independent New Zealand politics and media podcast. You're here with hosts me—I'm Philip. We have Branko. Hello, hello. We have Josephine. Kia ora. And we have Olivier down in the in the south in Otago. How's things, hello, Olivier? Team?
1: uh it's wet man it's gotta dry out
0: i can feel it just keep believing hold on to that feeling um we're here to talk about misinformation and disinformation there's been a few stories in the last week the last fortnight um that's kind of put this back on my sights again i suppose we've been talking about doing an episode talking about misinformation and disinformation for a while but it sort of comes and goes it's often not at the forefront of our minds um and kind of current events media space but it's never far behind. There's been this kind of drift in especially post uh post-pandemic New Zealand discourse. So talking more about uh dishonesty and kind of manipulation of the public sphere and uh kind of using discourse as a weapon, this kind of terms we had uh Jacinda to go to the UN and talk about this. We have the the disinformation project in New Zealand that I'm sure we'll get into later. Uh, and then a few kind of international Stories have been over the last week, um, that have had kind of competing versions of events, which inevitably turns into a story about who's misinforming who, uh, what's propaganda, what's reporting, what's journalism. Uh, so who better to have than uh, Olivier in the south who's, who loves this stuff? Um, and it's usually hard to shut up about it. So, my plan is to not shut him up about it, Olivier. Uh, thanks, Doug. Thanks, to man.
1: Us. I gotta be disciplined here. I want to say. First, I got to do the academic discourse disclaimer thing uh, to try to make myself uncancelable. But I, I I would say that, um, and as you know, look at Web of Chaos. I want to say that um, you know I like David Ferrier's uh, documentary film, Tickled. I think it's great. I read a lot of his stuff. Some of it's good. Some of it I don't like. But whatever, you know, he's a useful voice. I think that uh, Byron. I mean, I'm always uh, directing my students who work in this area towards his you know, careful study of right-wing subcultures and right-wing propaganda. That's again, extremely useful stuff, comes out of the activist space. Um, And as far as uh, the other contributors, Kate and Sanjana, I believe that they are sincere. And I do believe that they are, you know, subject to horrific uh, campaigns of harassment and worse. So, uh, you know, these are people that sincerely believe that this is the defining democratic issue of our moment, and I happen to disagree profoundly with their diagnosis of, of this problem. Um, I think there is, what's really interesting about the documentary, you can go into the specifics, but there is a sort of American-centric um, disinformation studies view, and when we've seen other documentary films construct very similar narratives, like The Social Dilemma, like The Great Hack, um, There's a New York Times documentary I reference in some of my work as well. And, And what these things do is they basically make this a technocratic issue. They have a highly normative analysis of the current moment, which pretty much redounds to like we've got good institutions and they're being attacked by either new technologies or geopolitical rivals, right? So Russians under the bed, Chinese, Iranians, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a highly normative um, analysis that basically doesn't allow us to admit that we are in this profound crisis of legitimacy of liberalism, neoliberalism, and and that is why we have um, these populist moments exploding everywhere. And some of that is techno assisted in particular ways and the nature of propaganda is is different um but this is a sort of like a historical continuum the other thing that i guess so the geopolitics is is a key thing there and and we'll definitely get to that and uh and what i think it's so inappropriate for new zealanders or new zealand media public intellectuals be to be taken up this issue is that we're essentially laundering uh American tech platforms and American sort of tech imperialism, because they are the sort of imperial core over where tech mm-hmm. um, uh, policy and regulations are crafted for very explicitly sort of, you know, imperial geopolitical reasons. And, you know, uh, I, and this is, this is ridiculous to have a sort of normative assumption that, as David Ferrier says, you know, I love technology right? Technology's great, you know, uh, to, to all the way to, and we must do something because web three is coming. I mean, bro, if you believe web three is coming, you've like swallowed every sort of line pumped out of Silicon Valley triumphalism to sort of recast what they do as not about, you know, corporate capitalism, but as just simply moving the ball, you know, from the Gutenberg press to where we are. And I, lastly, just to sort of, thing here. I mean, some of us in the field of media and communication studies have been talking about the corporate denigration of our societies, democracy, propaganda, etc, for decades. And there are useful tools here. Uh, They're useful sort of principles of like trying to understand how the state and how public intervention could be meaningfully used to sort of yeah, politicize and shape, you know, our the politics of the possible and this is not something that that we get at all in this sort of broad rubric of disinformation. I mean, in the Fire and Fury documentary, Kate Hanna says something like, oh, you know, um, you know, there are legitimate grievances against government, but, you know, you should just make submissions to parliament, you know, like or and I, I'll lastly, this is this, there's, a, there's a New York Times documentary um, Operation Infection, and they do a sort of like little record scratch. But doesn't America also propagandize? And then they say, yes, but we have transparency in our government and we have accountability. And the footage they show is like the fucking Iran Contra hearings in Oliver North as if that was accountability. And I'm the guy who will say, no, we literally like did a genocidal drug war on like the African-American community. There was no accountability. And if I say shit like that, then, then you put me on the disinfo conspiracy list. So it's all pretty infuriating. And fully just just wholly inadequate for the problems of the moment. But so that's my broad swath sort of description of the field.
0: Thanks for that. I think that's a good breakdown. Um there's a lot to dive into obviously different kind of aspects of that. Um it reminds me of I I listened to an interview with uh Kate Hanna and again not to pick on anyone in particular from the disinformation project as um Olivier said, but I think it's useful to have um good hearted kind of good purveyors of a different argument so that we have like a strong contest of views right there's no point attacking the um kind of online disinformation warriors who are probably not such good faith um, not such intelligent actors but kate hannah had quite an interesting um interview and when she was asked this isn't a new thing this information misinformation disinformation thing it's not new right um as olivier said she said no no it's not new uh but the moments in time that she jumped back to were technological moments. So she, she brought about, she talked about the printing press um, and the radio and the TV and now internet's different on a kind of technological scale rather than a social scale. Um, So I guess that jumps to the kind of technocratic impulses that you're talking about there, Olivier. Um, And in terms of like the distinction between, uh, I I guess a kind of skepticism of government rather than a reification or, or reliance on government as a, kind of liberal bedrock um of the institution this comes back to something actually i talked with josephine about a while ago um about just kind of the different uh modes of thinking i suppose in liberal academia and how that's uh relied upon
1: yeah i mean i think the well so one of the the recent sort of things that I've, i've written here is um there is a professional field being crafted here which is fully, you know, obscuring, and I use the word professional field the, word, the way Pierre Bourdieu would use it, which is to creating these sort of cultural centers of power that, that reify their authority and legitimacy through academia, different NGOs, different advocacy or, or tech Um, platforms doing sort of, uh, you know, good citizen stuff. And this is really interesting because, and and then you have the national security state and that's definitely less pronounced here, which again, I think makes the folks that we've talked about, you know, good faith actors in a way that, uh, my God, we can talk about some of the American folks who are just, you know, pure propagandists of empire, which is again, like, yes, we are subject to the whims of these big centers of power. And we need to like, think of a kind of national democratic conversation about like, what would um, a public platform policy position look like, right? So again, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn talked about how could we use the BBC licensing fee for something different, right, and intervene in this space. But yeah, so there are all these sort of like roundabout ways that that a liberal professional field would seek to sort of like, um, you know, legitimize their intervention in this way. And a lot of this reifies big data tools. And so this is one of the really nefarious things about this paradigm in my in my view is, if, if you remember Christopher Wiley, the pink haired uh, hacker from Cambridge Analytica, who's in the Social Dilemma documentary, excuse me, he's in the great hack documentary. And he was like, I was so powerful. I was opening up minds and turning people, puppeteering them and all this kind of stuff, which is exactly like, the propaganda that Cambridge Analytica was putting out about the efficacy of their tools, which is exactly like, I don't know, QAnon conspiracies about how powerful the instruments of media manipulation are. Um, and actually, if you look at the, um, the, the UK Parliament's information communications office, which is sort of like an ombudsman for, for, for media and communication in the UK, they're like, look, this is, this is marketing hype. So when we engage in this kind of like notion that there are these, you know, powerful forces able to send zombie hordes to the parliament grounds or to Capitol Hill, we're actually just, again, we are reifying the pitch that, you know, behavioral data is this new paradigm that is, you know, all, all powerful. It's not. And, and you know, when I, and, and part of this sort of uh, dispersing of these sort of like legitimation practices, like, um, Stanford Internet Observatory is like, I suppose, one of the key sites of the whole disinfo paradigm. It's in Stanford, right, which, which is Palo Alto, which is Silicon Valley. Um, Stanford Internet Observatory is actually run by Michael McFall. He's the professor. He's the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. And um, the founder of the center is this guy, Alex Stamos, who was the Facebook security a quote unquote whistleblower, I'm not so sure. But he basically went to Stanford to help Facebook open up its, you know, big data tools to other academics to kind of like poke around and sort of develop, you know, ways to address this problem. But again, you're all reifying this fundamental premise that Facebook and big data can do all these powerful things. And I can tell you some things about how people engage in digital space, but it doesn't come down to the it, you know, the core of belief and of ideology, which is fueled by, you know, all the sort of contradictions which make us human. And I, look, I come from a particular sort of Lacanian Marxist perspective. Um, So there's, you know, big rival competing theories here for why and how people find themselves on parliament grounds. Um, But the technocratic view uh, has a very, exceedingly deterministic, Uh, view of all this again which Mm -hmm. doesn't harm Facebook at all it wants to help make Facebook better you know we love technology we don't want to hurt Google or we don't want to hurt Facebook those are some of the lines from the social dilemma and like fuck it I do I do want to hurt these motherfuckers seriously anyway Mm -hmm. that's um I hope that made sense
2: yeah and it's um the narrative is so simplistic um it's as if um you know people are just Uh, completely mindless and you know there are no material issues or other factors contributing to people's actions um you know there's a lot of points that I want to make about this um you know in terms of the documentary both documentaries fire and fury and web of chaos um, but also in terms of since you brought in theory you know um when I was uh, studying at UC um you know um Foucault got you know (laughs) basically forced mm-hmm. into me by my supervisor um Foucauldian thought especially the earlier thought you know is really interesting uh, it talks about how knowledge is not innocent it bears the ideology of its proponents right so um yeah so if you think about um, you know colonial knowledge or even you know the default knowledge that's taken for granted as facts in the west for example um, this is to me misinformation and disinformation, right? <laughs> like, um, just think about the uh, the facts and the knowledge upon which the so-called facts and knowledge upon which settler colonialism was instituted in New Zealand, or colonization happened across the world. It was based on you know this idea of civilizational superiority, and that idea, in my view, still continues. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, there is neocolonialism and imperialism in the world today is because in the West, people just assume that their systems are better when actually the, you know, the lack of human rights in the global South is inherently connected to um, the systems in the West and Mm -hmm. people aren't. Aren't able to see this because of the kind of, you know, misinformation and disinformation in the, in the, what do you call it? uh, The fabric of knowledge over here. uh, thinking about Jacinda Ardern and her tirade against misinformation and disinformation, to me, this is hypocrisy at its peak. I do think that Jacinda Ardern is intelligent enough to understand that governments are a huge source of misinformation, including New Zealand government. In 2020, um, June, Jacinda Ardern made a joint statement um, with uh, the, the South African president um, you know, in in the context of the COVID crisis saying that where you live shouldn't determine whether you live. Um, New Zealand will support uh, the sharing of vaccine technologies. Mm -hmm. So she made this declaration in writing. And then what happened is, you know, there are other Powers at play in the West that determined the so you know the seemingly democratic processes over here. Uh, there were corporate lobbyists that lobbied to um, you know to not share the vaccine patents and other technologies patents, and eventually New Zealand abstained uh, from voting in favor of South Africa's plea to share vaccine technology. So uh, you know, wasn't she herself a purveyor of misinformation there? Um, There's so many examples of of the state, you know, because in my view, states and governments are, you know, the biggest purveyors of uh, of misinformation, and especially the Western governments, uh, if you think about the scale of the impact of their, of their uh, misinformation, we're talking about you know, millions of lives being lost through falsehoods being um, just printed without cross verification by Western media, by, you know, respected Western media like New York Times and Guardian um, about Global South countries and how these lead to wars. Let's think about, for example, the Gulf of Tonkin episode which led to the Vietnam War Um, or we can think about you know the first Iran war where you know the narrative was that babies were being taken out of incubators and it was a paid actor um, who did that in So, uh, and then, of course, the weapons of mass destruction, and of course, more recently, you know, uh, that Assad, uh, you know, did chemical strikes, and now we're hearing um, whistleblower reports that actually, uh, you know, there's a different, uh, there's a different uh, sequence of events over here, and that is not being discussed in Western media. So, and currently, if you look at, you know, the wars that are going on, and the, and the conflicts being fomented, there's so much misinformation being peddled by Western government. So, well, um, you know, these, these institutions, uh, whether it's the government or whether it's Western media or academia, Academia is another, you know, <laughs> institution which, in my view, is highly biased and produced a, produces a lot of harmful falsehood falsehoods that leads to neo-colonial um, policies that so, affect millions of people in the global south.
1: I want to I want to jump quickly on the back of that, which is to say, there we cannot excise these questions from, yes, materialism um, and, and empire as Josephine put it there. I mean, like what was ARPANET, i.e. the progenitor of the internet at its origin? It was a system of doing the kinds of rapid response to and counterinsurgency And, uh, you, you know, media was central to, again, how things like the uh, coups in, uh, oh my God, Arbenz 54, Um, and Musadeq, 53, right? Like control of the information system and, you know, Voice of America, all these sorts of imperial networks of communication were seen as a uh, coercive form of messaging that would be necessary for uh, America to kind of, you know, attack the Iron Curtain or Latin America or wherever it was. So there was this view of communication at its essence as as coercive about power about liberty in that you know cold war sense of it and that is what is so remarkable about the disinfo paradigm is how much it recapitulates this notion of you know messages as pure forms of sort of like coercion but inverts it and says that yes russia and china is trying to tell josephine to question syria chemical weapons or something right like this is the sort of and Of course, there is also the pathologizing of, um, you know, this goes way, way, way back. There's a wonderful book written by one of the Coburns, I guess Alexander, and co-written by somebody else, Whiteout, and they talk about the crack epidemic and Black conspiracy pathology, i.e. the liberal media and and Washington basically saying, oh, African-Americans, they're so traumatized by their history, they believe, that the cia was putting drugs on the street right and you know like and that this notion that these are pathologized populations and populations that make us weak to our rivals right so this is again um this is why a big thrust of the disinfo paradigm after 2016 was to say that oh russia is manipulating black lives matter we saw uh kamala harris i'll go on the wake up show and say that the Kaepernick thing. Oh, Russia engineered that. Or we saw Susan Rice, you know, Biden cabinet minister, um, say that George Floyd pro- pro- protests were textbook Russian operation to tear us apart from the inside, et cetera, et cetera. And let me be, let me be spicy here, right? You see, Fire and Fury, um, or uh, the Web of Chaos. There is a just pure straight line invocation to say that the protest movements. The parliament movements are, you know, crypto fascist, uh, you know, a stocking horse for for all these sort of nefarious, you know, inv- invocations of Weimar and, and all the rest. Now, um, it's complicated, but there are and I'm listening, you know, I, I can speak to some experience of, of friends and family, but this is a much more diverse group of people with disparate grievances and I'm not saying they're correct in their analysis at all and I you know I would diagnose them as sort of like a lump in proletariat i.e people that have been so stripped of a kind of a political lens for for understanding the myriad crises that we're in but to just make them uh, fucking Nazis is just outrageous and again pathologizing a lot of brown people who are there right so you're 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 doing all of the kind of uh, stuff that Josephine was talking about sort of, Objective truth as a sort of Eurocentric project, and the rest.
3: Anyway, yeah, I mean the the conversation about misinformation is uh, strikes me often as uh, a way to deal with something that you just put in the too hard basket. Uh, We don't want to deal with the actual causes of the unraveling of you know uh, the the social threads that hold us together. So uh, you know it's easy to just dismiss all these people as just kind of um, yeah fascists and people who uh are just stupid um and that's why they've they've come to where they are instead of you know looking at what are the root causes for why people turn to this information why is it that people consider joe rogan um a comedian who very openly says on his podcast often you know i don't know what i'm talking about uh i'm an idiot don't listen to me and yet, people glide by those uh, those caveats and and do trust him uh, more than they might uh, government sources or even the mainstream media. And as you guys have all lined out here pretty pretty capably, uh, there's no reckoning by the uh, voices who are most loud uh, warning about about misinformation, kind of uh, uh, fear mongering about. Online misinformation about their role in this. You know, uh, there's no there's no reflection about the fact that you know with COVID, um, it was often people like Anthony Fauci who were giving people the wrong uh, advice, and then admitting it later and saying that they did it for political reasons. It was news outlets, mainstream news outlets, who were likewise peddling false information, not necessarily maliciously, but just in the Fog and confusion of the of the early months of the pandemic, and and so many other things. I mean, the Iraq War, the, the U.S. press still hasn't really uh, had a reckoning um, over over its its total kind of um, you know the, the press's overwhelming role in pushing that. Uh, I mean, what's funny is actually when you look at the the evidence uh, about this stuff, about how effective misinformation is, because obviously misinformation exists. Obviously it persuades people. Obviously it's a problem, as it always has been. It's not as if Only now, people are now becoming misinformed. People have been misinformed of a wide variety of things through history. And I would say probably at the moment, we're better informed than we ever have been in in, in human history. But when you actually look at some of this stuff, I mean, there have been studies that that looked at the impact of fake news in the 2016 election. And what they found was that what fake news did was it often um, drove people who are already very partisan uh, further in that direction, but didn't necessarily actually change any minds, because most people don't get their news and their facts from, from social media. Um, most people still get it from number one TV news, especially older people, um, who, by the way, are the most likely to have voted for, for Trump in 2016. Um, I mean, beyond that, you know, there, there was a, a, a Harvard Kennedy Center uh, that there's this, this um, within the university, the this, this center that looks at these questions about misinformation and so on. Uh, and they've, they've done a number of analyses of, of various kind of um, claims about misinformation about its impact. Uh, one of the analyses they made found that the, 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 the election fraud nonsense that has become probably the focal point of the conversation about misinformation, certainly in the U.S., but I'd say probably New Zealand too to some extent, um, it didn't come from... Uh, social media and all this other stuff. I mean, you know, of course it was there, but the biggest drivers, they said it was, it was an elite and mass media phenomenon. As in this stuff was coming through cable news. It was coming from uh, politicians, you know, right-wing politicians, but politicians nonetheless. And the, the reason that this is important is that that suggests that the, the fixing it is going to be a lot more complicated than just saying, okay, well, we'll just censor a bunch of bots and fake news and things that we don't like online, and that'll be it. No, this is, a, this is a much bigger problem. It's a problem of declining social cohesion. It's a problem of widening inequality. It is a problem of a, a loss of trust in institutions. It's a problem of corporate concentration that allows um, news companies to become businesses and monopolies and control a, an inordinate amount of our public discourse. Um, and I would just point to a couple other studies. Uh, that recently came out, you know, we talk a lot about Russian disinformation, right? Russian disinformation, Chinese disinformation, Iranian disinformation. And look, of course, these governments are doing stuff to try and propagandize on the internet to shape the narrative, to shape public opinion. All governments do, of course. But what this study found, there's actually two studies, two recent studies. One found that overwhelmingly, most of the... um, the the, the stuff being pushed by by bots and the like uh, online uh, about a variety of subjects, usually to do with geopolitics, is is not coming from Russia and China. It's it's mostly coming from the United States, which makes sense because where are all these all these global tech companies that we rely on as the, as our public squares? They're located in the United States. They are under the direct authority of the U.S. government. There was another study. Uh, looked at um, the first two weeks of social media discourse on the Ukraine war um, and what did it find It looked at five million tweets in that two-week period five million it's a lot. It found number one in any given hour 60 to, around 60 or 80 percent of the tweets that were being done about the war were coming from, from bots. number one number two 90 percent of those bots uh, were on the pro-Ukraine side. Uh, as in, you know, they would have come from from Western governments, particularly the United States. Now, you might say that's not so objectionable, you know, why why wouldn't you be pro-Ukraine? They're being attacked. Of course, yes, it's common sense to be pro-Ukraine. However, it's not just that these are pro-Ukraine messages. These are messages that are deliberately muddying the facts about why this war has started, uh, the various factors involved in the war, including that you know this is a, a civil war before it was a was a invasion by Russia, a whole bunch of stuff that's really pertinent, pertinent that is being muddied by by all these you know uh, 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 fake posts that are written by by most likely a government, um, and so you know this is a, a way more complicated story than I think people usually uh, want to ascribe it to, and then number number two as well, uh, it, it also means that. Again, a country that a government that we are allied with in New Zealand is 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 by far the worst propagator (laughs) of of this information. Um, And so, you know, again, it comes back to we we got to clean our own house uh, uh, if we're going to you know talk about the 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 malign influence of bots. And I would say, even so, I I think there's a limited um, uh, uh, influence that a lot of the social media stuff happens. I think again, whether it's the Ukraine war, whether it's coronavirus, whether it's anything else most of the, the wrong information you're going to get, most of the misleading information or context missing information you're going to get, it's going to come from the mainstream news, as as it always has been. And look,
0: yeah, I think that's right. and I think um, it's important to say that this isn't an inherent thing based on like when we say that uh, the vast majority of, in terms of nation location, for example, where does the vast majority of misinformation, disinformation come from numerically, that's not, we're not picking on America because uh, of any kind of you know inherent uh, national or racial or DNA magic kind of superiority or whatever—that's a description I mean, of power dynamics. I'm
1: open to well, that <laughs> conversation, Olivia. <is.
3: laughs> well, look, I mean, no, the United States I'm, is I'm the most
1: exceptionalism power-
3: <laughs> The United States, the United States is the most powerful yeah. government in the entire world, and again, it is the it is the the physical location, the physical and economic yeah. and cultural location of where these platforms come from, aside from TikTok. But this Except is the, the The only one. But, this but is otherwise, this but is the point. other important
2: to... thing uh, about the United States is is to remember that United States domestic and foreign policy are not democratically determined. These are determined through other processes, um, you know, through which uh, certain vested interests like corporations, billionaires, they have a greater say on the policy of the United States. And so this is another major reason why United States is the the biggest source of misinformation in the world, uh, you know, uh, arguably, and through that study that uh, Branco just mentioned, um it's it's because corporations control more or less the government yeah, over it's there. It's
0: a description of the world as it is, right? It's not about the United States fundamentally. it's it's a vector. So yeah, my point is is, is, mis- is, is it more useful to think of misinformation as a pathology? or the kind of inevitable result of material actions that are being taken for self-interested reasons by the most powerful actors in the world. Like I would argue categorically the latter. And it's the the fact that the kind of um, liberal, um, I guess kind of small L, psychological liberal understanding of misinformation seems to t- continually skew towards the former, even when they talk about solutions and they talk about social cohesion and needing to community build and that people who uh, in material deprivation may need assistance you know all of which the disinformo- disinformation project type people um would say when you talk to them about solutions like a lot of that stuff I agree with and I think is all useful stuff but that's the the way they kind of analyze the problem getting back to what Olivia was saying near the beginning is just categorically a different way of kind of thinking about the world right like um just as another quick example like in the early 2010s when the CIA ran a, a fake vaccine project in Pakistan um to find Bin Laden. That was, you know, what more missing dam- damaging kind of uh, institutionally backed misinformation um, plan could and, you and, enact?
3: And and that had a that did have a, a, a really a uh, damaging impact on Pakistan's willingness to to actually or Pakistani people's willingness to take this coronavirus vaccine as well. Now, you know, so that that had uh, ramifications well beyond uh, just that year.
1: So and I, I I think one way of uh, putting this back into thinking about American empire, I think American empire does really well in sort of like crises. And it's in the current moment. Um, It is really remarkable. This this is part of what I think is interesting about these very American tech centric narratives, like defining our democratic polities is Um, this is part of us just gravitating back in a sort of multipolar moment towards a notion that we feel comfortable and safe in. We can accept, oh, right, it's not perfect. And we can concede some points about whatever Anglo-American, Western excess and lies. but, But deep down, our systems are this thing that is potentially redemptive. And that's what makes uh, American propaganda so effective, and this is again going back to Herman and Chomsky, right? The Pravda system of Soviet propaganda is, you know, easily caricatured as, you know, whatever. Just just think of the uh, Soviet totalitarian uh, party man and the sort of straight line um, and sort of Kremlinology and all that stuff. But the beauty of whatever Anglo-American Western propaganda systems is, it has all these notions of professional autonomy and liberal idealism um, that people will continue to defend, even as it doesn't exist. But in and in, in the face of a, whatever a Chinese or Russian menace, and so that is the 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 key sort of imperial or sort of empire fault line that cuts through not just the platforms as they sort of like you know, like chaos is pretty good at sort of like creating this sense of a need to return to an epistemically consistent past or whatever. Um, And I guess culturally, intellectuals, academics, public figures, they just, they, you know, the water's fine, you know, They're, they're more or less comfortable in that sort of space rather than, and again, I would be in favor of cynically using a sort of like yes, New Zealand is beset by American myths and disinformation and we need like to decouple and forge our own sort of like, you know, information uh, or sorry, uh, you know, media public policy for the you know, vitality of our democracy. I, you know, I, I wouldn't be opposed to sort of like using this line of argument um, for that. Uh, but, but I think we're just sort of just the, the, the habits of sort of being in the West or whatever, is just sort of kicking in, it's just dragging us in. And when the time comes for us to hit the like China eject button, you know, we'll probably hit it. You know,
0: yeah, yeah. I think that that's a really useful phrase that you just said, Olivier, like about our systems of power. That um, was make, making me think maybe one kind of cleavage to to create again is like, do you ultimately think that our systems of power, I guess as currently constituted, are ultimately redemptive, or are they the problem? Like that's that's one of the differences, right? Um, like some of the some of the issues that they bring up when. Uh, misinformation disinformation focused kind of liberal academics talk about like what's destroyed the social cohesion in the, in the west if they're talking about individual moments they might talk about like uh jeffrey epstein conspiracies or like me too uh uncovering uncoverings of things that have been going on for decades or like the abuse in hollywood church cover-ups for example um these are all you know first world kind of incantations that have been uh brought across from a more like maybe discursive like broad-based understanding of that but I would say that those opportunities, not, um, that, that's not what started the problem, right? Those are opportunities to uncover the fact that there is this massive inequality um, in, in people's access to solutions, people's access to power. Like, this, this is what the world looks like. I, I think we're getting closer to reality by uncovering all of these kind of ultimately uh, quite kind of naked exercises in power without all of the kind of trappings of, no, the the systems will save us, the liberal institutions will save us, the cops are fine. Like, call the cops. um, Let them come and shoot your dog. That's the the
2: solution. (laughs) Uh, Can I just jump in? And uh, I just wanted to pick up on a point that Branko said uh, before that um, you know being on Ukraine's side is common sense now I'm going to push back on this narrative of common sense especially common sense in the west or in any part of the world Um, the you know the discourse of common sense is problematic because you know in each era common sense can be later be proven to be you know absolute. Uh, bollocks. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) uh, if you think about Ukraine from, you know, various different perspectives, I see Ukraine as a victim. um, But But here the instigator in my view has been the United States. And so there are different ways of looking at at Ukraine and the common sense in different parts of the world is different. Um, I was talking to some of my friends from China who said, you know, uh, USA is equally responsible if not greater um, for the Ukraine crisis. And this is the the position of many people in the global South, uh, including many African countries. Um, And this is based on, you know, historical knowledge, and also an in-depth study of what happened um, there before this crisis. And also an understanding of NATO, right? Um, (laughs) The idea of NATO as a defensive um, organization is misinformation in my view. It's an offensive military organization that has been involved in regime change wars, in multiple countries in the global south so it's not you know it's not surprising that if a country could feel cornered by the presence of nato um, uh, uh, you know at its border so this assumption of common sense in the west is something that i want to p- push back on you know uh, strongly and just to um, and just to uh, think about um, you know the um the documentary <laughs> I'm going off topic now. Uh, you know, I've just talked about one topic, and I'm going to talk about the documentary now. Um, the documentary for me, it was like um, I'm talking about the Web of Chaos. It was it was kind of like a '90s Western <laughs> um, documentary with all this like eerie background music, and um, you know, these people who are the purveyors of truth saying, you know, that these people are bad, but. You know, I was in Christchurch during the Christchurch terrorist attack, and I think um, I really hope that that event would turn into a moment of reckoning um, for us on, you know, our, our history and, you know, common sense or, you know, the, um, the default knowledge that we take for granted.
3: I think we're getting a little off topic here uh foreign wars are bad terrorism is bad they're both they're both bad i don't think there's any point in saying which is worse i also don't know if we're, it's it's worth relitigating the cause of the war uh i i'm familiar with the the, the u.s foreign <laughs> policy role i literally have a piece that just came out today about this um but uh, in a sense uh, you confirmed that yeah being pro-ukraine is is common sense i think most countries no one's supporting the russian invasion i mean even even countries like uh India think it was a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It's nothing to do with about the 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 U.S. role in it. It's just about the the, the idea that one country invading another is not looked upon very friendly. I mean, African countries, a lot of the South uh, do not look very friendly. Well, I'm not saying that,
2: that it was the right thing that Russia did, but what I'm saying is, you know, the default Western view is not the common sense view.
3: Is what I'm saying. Well, no, but but so being pro-Ukraine is being invaded and attacked, I think is a fairly globally common sense view. It's held by pretty much everyone. I mean, the, the, the Russian invasion was roundly uh, condemned even by African countries that, that called it a colonial you know, attempt, a neo-colonial attempt to redraw borders. So, but all this is off topic. Uh, I think the, the reason why the war in Ukraine is pertinent to this discussion is because, I mean, if you want to talk about the dangers of, of misinformation and where misinformation comes from and where the worst most dangerous misinformation comes from. Uh, The war in Ukraine is is really a poster child for that because, I mean, you could go down the list of so many examples where the mainstream press has uh, laundered stuff that the US government has later admitted, oh yeah, that wasn't true, or we didn't even know if that was true, we just kind of said it. Um, Or where they've just gotten things wrong or been fed false information and it's nearly led to some catastrophe. And the best example of that I mean, uh, we're recording this, what, um, two days after a, uh, what it turns out was a Ukrainian air defense missile uh, landed in Poland, killing two people. Um, and what happened? Uh, there was a widespread rush to, to blame Russia uh, and say that it was not just that it had accidentally struck a NATO state, but that it had actually, Deliberately struck a an NATO state, and suddenly you had calls from Ukrainian officials, you had calls from various NATO government officials, um, you had calls from various "quote unquote" experts, all saying now is okay. We have to escalate. We basically have to start World War III now. And then what? What happened? It turns out that this wrong information that could have led to something unspeakably disastrous had all started from an Associated press report that uh, repeated the charge of a anonymous US intelligence official, a senior US intelligence official, whatever that means, um, who said that it had been a Russian missile. And that was completely wrong. And then it was from there, repeated everywhere in Bloomberg, the Washington Post, Reuters. The, the thing that I'm trying to get out here, every one of these sources that I've just mentioned is the most establishment of establishment sources. Uh, and when we talk about misinformation, when we talk about uh, at least the, the efforts to, to control misinformation that, that most governments now have put forward, uh, these are the exact sources that are considered quote-unquote trusted sources. As in, these are the ones that we need to hold up, elevate, maybe even, even fund and boost to combat misinformation and it's all these other you know independent outlets uh or you know uh, uh heterodox uh or, oh the gray sorry. zone we
1: got it we gotta hit the nuclear button on the gray zone
3: <laughs> yeah it's all these other voices that are actually the real problem and and in here it was the exact reverse and you know and in this case it wasn't just something that was saying to people you know i don't know the, the vaccine has my you know microchips in it or whatever, which. Don't get me wrong, is obviously damaging bullshit, of course. But in this case, it could have literally led to World War III. Uh, and so I think that points to the difficulty of actually trying to approach this problem of misinformation through this heavy hand of censorship, particularly censorship done through uh, done at the government's behest. Uh, it's very difficult to, to evenly, uh, 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 you know, parcel out this kind of censorship, especially because um, you know some of the some of the most virulent spreaders of censorship are, are not going to be censored. And by the way, that's a good thing. We would never say, in light of all this stuff that just happened with, with, with Ukraine, we would never say, "Oh, it's time for the government to clamp down on the free press to stop this dangerous stuff from happening." We we recognize the dangers of that when it comes to newspapers tv all the kind of traditional modes of media for some reason we haven't quite figured that out uh when it comes to, to to new modes of media that are overwhelmingly uh web-based and online
1: so we got a you know this problem here of no accountability for as you say some of the most dangerous use of propaganda misinformation imaginable um and no hope really of that i mean look you know part of again part of the the diagnosis, the problem of why uh, people feel completely alienated, you know, whatever, go down the line, uh, Great Recession, Iraq War, these are all these big watershed moments where no one's ever been held accountable. But what's really interesting now is that we do wanna have folks that are intimately tied into the sort of geopolitics of, for example, you know, the Russia, Ukraine, uh, NATO stuff, be part of the social media teams that, uh, if not censor, steer, advise on algorithms, advise on which you know uh, accounts to to ban and, and all the rest of it, and you know this is the really sort of this is so linked to empire in the sense that if you look at the big events of sort of left social democratic Bernie Corbyn electoralism, you had. In 2019, you had Ben Nimmo, who is the head of influence operations at Facebook, uh, who's also been part of uh, Digital Forensics Research Lab, which is Atlantic Council, uh, NATO think tank, which is in this space, basically say that the leaks of NHS documents showing that the Tories were going to sell out the NHS to the US was a Russian operation, and that factual information is less important than a kind of hybrid war, cold war framing and narrative and understanding of that, right? So it's not important that we know what the DNC emails say, it's that we know that Russia is trying to heighten and to divide. We had the same thing happen in 2020, digital uh, DFR labs were the key Facebook election integrity um, sort of partners. And they produced they produce these sort of like uh, charts and graphs and sort of like pseudo data about how to track misinformation. And they, they charted as the big misinformation events of the 2020 election as the George Floyd protests and anonymous intelligence claims that Bernie Sanders was being helped by the Russians. Now, again, they don't evaluate the substance of, uh, of these anonymous intelligence leaks. They just simply report them as, you know, just prima facie objective truth, and again, we are meant to sort of understand these big social moments, right, Bernie Sanders, Black Lives Matter, not in their own terms, not in their own discourse, but, you know, made subservient to the sort of like hybrid war, civilizational Cold War mode that we're currently in. it's, I mean, is that worse than censorship? I don't know, but it's definitely like a form of propaganda again, which is to kind of reimpose a singular frame and to make sort of like trusted authorities around truth and to escape into fantasies of like a univocal singular truth that uh, again is about uh, firming up American corporate interests. So that sucks
0: and to bring it and to bring it home on a kind of similar note uh, not to bring it home in a uh, in a time sense but in a geographical sense <laughs> um we can always see this when it comes to like Maori perspectives right any kind of um structural Maori thinker in the you know for the last four decades uh, are always talking about the differences in ways of knowing history and you know the kind of different ideological understandings that become uh inevitable based on different kind of backgrounds and so that's both as a combination of kind of class analysis and ways of knowing and historical understanding and all this, mm. right? But like, there's plenty I disagree with Tina Nata about, but that's a really valuable voice to have in a conversation about uh, misinformation and disinformation, that, you know, white supremacy ideology is a fundamental type of uh, misinformation that was part of the fabric of New Zealand society, the kind of um, original sin of misinformation in New Zealand, if you like. Um, and yep. you know, if you, if you go to Waitangi every year, there are debates about misinformation. Um, this has been going on forever. It's not, you know, n- none of this is linked to the kind of big T technologies that, uh, that we're talking about, like this, this won't come up in these kind of discuss in these discussions that they have that need kind of immediate, um, nominal kind of solutions to them. Right. So how, how's a Facebook filter going to solve, uh, land <laughs> lands, that was stolen based on misinformation and, uh, racist myths. Right.
1: I got very little to add there, but just to say that, like, there's no co-governance principle for like, I don't know, Facebook moderation or advisors. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is a, if we accept that these are communication networks that are central to democratic and public life, we literally have no recourse there. There's, you know, so again, if that's the case, then we need to forge a treaty-informed public democratic policy around the role that media and communication play in our democracy, if we're serious about this stuff. That's the really sort of, um, again, the one of the big problems of the framing here is that like, I literally don't think you're taking democracy. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a sort of like liberal pluralist thing where like the market does a certain thing here, the government does a certain thing here. But if it's a larger principle, in a moment of, if not revolution, but of sort of reform, sort of necessitated intervention, then um, then then we really need to like, yeah, I don't know, think about how we extricate ourselves from American networks of empire and try something else or just carve out a little space for something that's different, right?
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely funny how the, the disinfo warriors in, in New Zealand Uh, uh, kind of myopically focused on the US, right? Like uh, in one of the interviews with um, Sanjana Hototawa, Hototua, I am not how to pronounce his last name. Um, He was saying New Zealand's going to become like the United States based on, um, in in heavy quote marks, uh, the degree of dangerous speech that we're allowing um, in the discourse. So I'm not sure what that, what his implication there is, like what types of speech he wants cracked down on and what his mechanism for that would be. But he was saying, like no no country manages to contain uh violence to the online space when there's this degree of violent rhetoric. Um which
1: I don't know I don't know how they measure this I, stuff. I right? feel it's like guns would be, I, I feel like guns would be a big variable there yeah. to kind of maybe try to factor in there. But yeah, what are you gonna say, Bronco?
3: I mean that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, number one, firstly, the, the US is expansive uh free speech predictions, actually one of the one of the Few good things about its anti uh, constitution. Um, it, it's one of the reasons why you can't do in the US things like you you can in the UK, uh, where the government you know suppressed um, uh, a leak uh, uh, of an Iraq war memo, very <laughs> cr- uh, incriminating Iraq war memo, uh, by just saying no, that's a state secret. We're just going to prevent you from from publishing that. You can't do that in the US. Um, you know, I mean, the idea that that it's because of this permissive um, uh, first amendment protection that that's why you have violence in the United States is, is just, it's just, this doesn't so sort of based in history. Uh, the U S is, is, and has long been a, a very violent country. Um, I mean, you know, uh, not just in terms of uh, uh, the, the, you know, the genocide of native Americans and all of that stuff, but even just in terms of um, the way that society was structured and worked uh, violence was everywhere. Uh, and it still is. I think the U S leads the world and, you know, the number of assaults and that kind of thing um so i mean there's lots of other stuff but this is this is the thing that you have talked about before olivia where you you talked about how there's this uh, uh tech reductionism now right where it's like everything can be boiled down to online disinformation through social media and that's just not true there's there's so much else going on um that that, that influences and stuff i mean people also if they want to crack down on on speech if they want to legislate morality um, in a a kind of lefty way instead of the bad uh, right-wing way, um, then they should keep in mind, I mean, uh, how does this stuff actually get applied? I mean, you're talking about a criminal justice system and a carceral system that I think most liberal-minded people would acknowledge uh, tends to be weighted against uh, non-white, non-Pakeha people. Well, uh, that's going to work the same way if you if you're trying to you know um, crack down on, on people's bad speech. I mean, you know, uh, in the U.S., for instance, a lot of the the hate crime uh, stuff and hate speech stuff gets gets um, thrown at, at you know non-white people. Um, well, I have a have, compromise. Well, let, a let, have thing. Yep. let me just add one more thing. Let me just add one more thing. Also, some of the people who are uh, Hit with 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 uh, anti-speech laws are you know people who are posting things about the police who, who say you know hateful things about the police. So you people need to think about the way that all these things, which are very nice sounding and well-meaning, but but they can very easily be mis- be misused. The the people who run things, the people who control the political system, uh, are not necessarily people who share your understanding or your view of what is dangerous or what is harmful uh, speech or even what is misinformation um there's a lot of stuff that people think that that i would disagree with and i would say that's wrong and there's a lot of stuff that 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 i believe and say that people will probably say well i think that's wrong so it all depends on who's actually uh, at the head of this uh, of this of this power and, and who's using these laws
1: I believe in the third way. Get the disinfo uh, hunters to uh, mark the accounts that get put to National's boot camp program.
3: This is a great synthesis, (laughs) finally.
2: (laughs) Just another point about the, you know, uh, the common sense prevailing in the West um, uh, and the tech companies, for example, uh, Twitter, uh, you know, uses the label um, Russian state affiliated media or Iranian state uh, affiliated media, but never says the same for Western media, which are considered to be objective and whatever comes from them to be, you know, the objective truth again, you know. Um, yeah, so again, like in that um, documentary, Byron does touch upon one issue which was um, really important to highlight about incel culture, which was you know the socioeconomic reasons behind um, the rise of the incel culture. But um, the documentary doesn't go far enough to you know uh, uh, to uh, to explore that point in depth. It just there's a, a mention of it without much more um, you know. Um, discussion on it. So it does touch upon some good points, but um, by and large, yeah, it doesn't really talk about the material issues and also the fact that our systems have failed, um, you know, to meet the needs, the basic needs, the material security uh, and dignity of so many people, um, you know, in, in Western liberal uh, democracies. This is one of the reasons why people uh, are seeking, um, you know, solace in conspiracies and in, you know, um, in other... information, yeah.
3: By, by by that same virtue, I mean, I think this is why people kind of find solace in the misinformation stuff, because that's the stuff that we, to some extent, we've all given up on trying to change. We've decided, you know, suddenly both major parties uh, in New Zealand have given up on trying to actually uh do anything about this lopsided economy and and, and the suffering of people. Uh, The media doesn't seem to care that much either, at least, you know, high profile commentators. Um, And I think a lot of people kind of, you know, left-leaning people, liberals, they've uh, also kind of become disillusioned and frustrated with the the, the lack of political change and, and the seemingly no avenue for progress. So what's the one thing we can still do? well, we can still you know censor stuff we can still have the government um, do things to, to crack down on speech and social media and the like and so that's where people end up kind of uh, putting their hopes but you know I, I, I think beyond the kind of um, bad outcomes this might have on you know uh, a free press or a free society or certainly for the left which relies on a more open internet to be able to you know uh, have the, the, the limited sway that it does, uh, I think in the end, if you do all this stuff, I think people are going to be disappointed to find that it's not going to do anything. I mean, yeah. I think it's it's worth noting all of this stuff that people are now complaining about, the election fraud stuff in the US, the anti-vaccine and anti-lockdown stuff in New Zealand, everything else that we can possibly think of, it's all happened in the wake of a marked increase in internet censorship. It's all happened since all of these companies at the, the, the behest of politicians have started censoring more things and, and putting in place more kind of content quote unquote content moderation policies. Um, I mean, if, if that doesn't point to the failure of these things to actually fix the things that we're talking about, then then I don't know what does.
1: So I, I would I would conclude by saying yeah on the on the sort of techno determinism. I mean, again, here is a paradigm that has set its sights on advising a sector of the economy and particular platforms that are currently in free fall, right? So there's where your lack of material analysis gets you, right, is like not actually being able to you know, understand. Uh, and, and, and so we're gonna get this weird amalgam of, uh, I mean, who knows what this looks like out the other side, which is, I think why it's important to engage in larger discussions about, you know, public media and the rest. Um, and then, you know, this is, uh, you guys have talked about this brilliantly. We are in, uh, you know, our government, whether through 30, 40 years of neoliberalism, whether through lack of political will or whatever, has got no ability to bring the hammer down on some of the worst emergency housing violators. Who, you know, if I were ever going to like construct a gallows at a protest, yeah, I'm not going to finish that sentence, you know, but like, you know, there is a Anger, and I'm fucking angry. You know, like I really am. And because of the lack of accountability and lack of justice, that is, like you know, very material. And you have to satisfy that. I don't mean that in a sense of like, uh, demagogic or whatever. But you know, you cannot go around. This is sort of like a a, a profound, like moral and ethical crisis, which is if nobody is ever accountable for you know violating the public trust, then obviously you cannot have a public trust. And so uh, that and that precipitates the various crises of, you know, uh, inability, anti-vax, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the sort of like a key ethical political project of reinstilling people's sense of justice, class, just economic, racial justice, like, and that's conflict, right? That's not a sort of Uh, Oh, right. There's just truth. And, you know, rational dialogue wins out on the day. It's not that vision of politics. It's an antagonistic vision of politics that we have that liberalism is not capable of, you know, embracing, but that we must if we like, this is to your point, Bronco, we can, you know, this sort of liberal technocratic intervention can only but reproduce the sort of like hordes of barbarians at the gate. So, you know, they're not even taking sort of fascism seriously, really.
0: And look, yeah, just to get back to the, the kind of conspiracy side, without making this a podcast about conspiracies and free speech, which I think is like very tightly connected, but not entirely the same topic. Um, there's pretty good evidence that belief in conspiracies across the board isn't increasing. Um, from, you know, Joe, Joe Usinski and various other like researchers in the States who are conspiracy theory nerds um, do these kind of deep dives and quite complex analyses of what people actually believe. And, you know, depending on your definition of a conspiracy, blah, 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 it, it's becoming more and more foregrounded. But just to note that, you know, it's not the end of the world. The, the material um, conditions are getting worse for subsets of people. And the people who think that misinformation is the greatest problem we have to face as a society, uh, of course, are a very specific demographic. It's people like us who spend all their time reading the news uh, because it's in our face all the time, right? If that's what about.
1: basically.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the worst people. The, the the well, there's, there's a
3: real, there's a real parallel to uh, the kind of, um, you know, let's say, uh, right wing or, or just middle New Zealand uh, panic around crime. Um, that's not yeah. just New Zealand; it's happening everywhere. Um, where, also, of course, crime is a is a terrible thing. You know, uh, there, there has been a slight uptick. Um, historically, crime is very low, though, in in both New Zealand and the United States and other countries. Um, so, why do we have this? huge panic about crime now? Well, it's because we're constantly hearing about it in the media. Um, now, I, I haven't quite done the, the, the data crunching to say for sure that that's the case with, with the, the panic about misinformation and conspiracy theories, but I have a hunch that that's a very similar phenomenon. Um, you know, it's not like, like I said, we've always had misinformation. We've always had conspiracy theories. Uh, in, in fact, in many ways, I think people were probably more misinformed back in the day uh, the only difference now is that we're just hearing about it constantly and we're being told by people in power, by the news, by, by other trusted sources that this is, the, this is the biggest problem facing humanity. And so a lot of people who, yeah, as you say, Philip, consume the news heavily, they hear all this stuff and they go, oh, my God, this is a real, a real issue. Um, and it seems to be a, a far more prevalent feeling, I feel like, in, in, in New Zealand is in, in other countries from what i've seen i mean that so that that polling that was recently done that found like what 80 80 percent of people or something found that or thought that that misinformation is the biggest threat i should get that yeah. number right before i just throw it out there but...
0: which does just seem bananas right like i'd rather not have a, yeah. a vic uni undergrad like scrolling through my twitter posts putting citation needed after every hashtag a cab comment um <laughs> like i don't know what these people think they're um their utopia of uh, less free speech is going to look like um yeah but to i guess to kind of to bring it back to like an institutional level as Olivier is talking about like uh bronco was saying before that uh i guess these these platforms like regulating themselves or increasing the i guess the kind of marginalia of um limiting speech or whatever that's not a that's not a solution and we're not going to sit down and nail out a solution today but like I've heard, Olivia, in the past you've been more kind of um, pessimistic about the ability, like the techno-futuristic ability of platforms to even be part of that solution, right?
1: Fuck. I'm not a solutions guy, man. I'm so no. anti-techno solutionism that I have spent no, I'm well not... oh, okay. Sorry. Um, well I'm not, ask- I'm not think... asking
0: for your solution. I'm asking I'm asking okay. you to justify throwing cogs into the um, into the pipes of the internet.
3: Fix fix the problem, Olivia. Can you just tell us <laughs> how, to, how to fix Right now, um, everyone listening, Olivia is about to put down a ten-point plan for making all the stuff better.
0: No, not at all. I, really, what I'm—oh really no, my a, mic's on mute. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to get it, but, but then... the Atlanta Council has has stopped. Damn it, we it's, were so, so close to
3: solving all this stuff.
0: There's this kind of there's this kind of accelerationist, uh, not accelerationist, forward-moving kind of utopian solutionism, where if you ask anyone from the disinformation project or these kind of liberal, progressive, forward-moving kind of things, they, they're not going to say, uh, break up Facebook. They're going to say fix Facebook. We don't want to hurt Facebook. We don't want to hurt Google as we sort of start off this conversation saying. Um, but if we do want to hurt those actors because we think they're part of a fundamentally unjust kind of world order and tied too deeply to est- establishment models and power structures to be able to disentangle, what does the what does throwing clogs into the the pipes of the internet look like like you can't Chip just stop using platforms right there's too many of them it's well, part of the world all
1: right so i think we have to identify a very particular you know tech narrative and ideology that is a form of like class power so i'll give an example grant robertson uh on the labor future of work conference back in like 2018 cited a mckinsey report about ai and automation bruh don't do that okay don't be a class trader don't and again this is a similar sort of thing like uh the notion that justifies uh the kinds of interventions that they're talking Web with chaos is like oh web 3 is coming it's like no stop embracing tech fait complies that this is this thing that's rewiring the ground the world from the ground up we've actually seen just how fragile this economy is how precarious, how it's just based on free money, and uh, there's a not there's not always a lot there, right? So um, I think, and you know, Dave Columbia talks um, about, you know, there are things that need to be decomputerized, computerized that need to be brought outside of the logic of computation, um, in order to, I mean, like there are virtues to having public based, consultative forms of like, you know, grounded communal politics, right? So sort of D tech oriented sort of politics. And again, thinking about our economy materially, this is so part of the the last 10 years of web 2.0 is that like, if the neoliberal sort of period of the early 20th, uh, 21st century, the, the aughts was thinking about every corporation or every household is like a financial instrument. Now, every corporation, every government service is often thought about like a platform, right? A platform for, you know, having hackathons and solutionism and all that kind of stuff. So um, in terms of like where the internet and where technology can play a constructive role, we should really be looking to kind of, you know, band that sort of approach for very specific use cases And then, uh, my God, this is sort of like, I sound like a Trotskyite now, but just sort of like, um, you know, simple sort of like social democratic stuff, if not policy, but an ethos, right? Because what does social uh, democratic stuff look like in a world where sort of like global supply chains and these sorts of dependencies are sort of uh breaking down a little bit i really don't know i don't know of a paradigm that really quite um responds to that just now man this is wholly unsatisfactory i understand but the mystique is gone of tech right we're not going to have flying cars we're not going to have tesla whatever all right so now it's time to actually think about real needs and like this, this all right here's here's a practical thing Part of this hysteria, part of this middle class hysteria that uh, mirrors the uh, fascist middle class hysteria of a sort of societal collapse is that basically everybody is a bot except me. That's the sort of like default frame we're kind of in right now. And so we have to trust in that, you know, the way Zizek might talk about the Christian neighbor, we have to sort of like trust the neighbor and all of its mystery and indeterminacy right? As part of like, regaining, like, I don't know, public democratic life, right? And um, that's hard. We've had three years of pandemic that have stood in the way of that, um, you know, uh, whatever the trade union movements, always sort of on the ropes. But you know, that's a place where you do that kind of stuff where you feel really good being part of something. Again, I know these are just trite cliches that, you know, leftist sort of, it doesn't matter what, the circumstances are we sort of always return to that kind of stuff but but there we go uh, i don't have anything better than that at the moment but a good a good dose of Luddism is is really important if we actually want to identify where this technology can help us then we actually you know take that critical perspective of what is it actually doing stop looking so this is Sta- stafford beer's principle a technology do- oh fuck i'm going to misquote I'm going to totally misquote it, but like, you know, we need to understand technology by not what it says it does, but what it actually does. Right. And that's really useful. What is Facebook? It's a fucking telephone directory. Right. With some video and text and instant messaging, you know, like and that becomes a useful way for shit, man. I remember when the telephones used to be owned by the state and, uh, you know, that was a paradigm that had its virtues, it had a downside. But like this is not like an impossible set of questions here. Good thing my mic was muted.
2: I just wanted to say just one thing. Um, Another, you know, theoretical perspective is, you know, those who actually control uh, the channels of information and knowledge uh, get to shape what people think as, you know, Uh, the truth or untruth. Uh, And currently in the West, you can see how, um, you know, vested interests, wealthy interests, corporations, billionaires, um, they undermine our democratic processes and they have a greater say in a lot of the discourse that is in the mainstream around us. So uh, it's really important for us to be aware that, you know, these, the interests of the wealthy might be um, coming through in the sources of knowledge around us, whether it's academia, whether it's media and so forth. So for example, on a housing issue, oftentimes, you know, the mic is given to the property investors association and never given to the homeless person on the street, right? On an international issue, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's the West that determines what is, the truth and untruth. And so, you know, I just urge our listeners to um, pay attention to some of the critical counter narratives coming from, you know, leftists um, and, you know, activists and uh, other other parts of the world as well. And uh, yeah, that's my concluding statement. Thank you.
3: I think that's, that's an important message. I think, you know, we talk a lot about people having critical thinking and looking critically at uh, you know, whatever fake news and stuff they see on social media, which they absolutely should. But people need to do the same thing for for some of these, you know, quote unquote trusted or quote unquote authoritative sources too. Uh, I mean you gotta you gotta read the, the mainstream press and government official statements with just as much of a critical eye as you're going to take to these things. And and yeah I think the, the way that this debate as always gets reduced to a binary is is not really very helpful or productive if we really want to deal with you know misinformation
0: yeah I think that's a good that's a good place to wrap up thanks team. pretty wide- ranging uh, discussion, which is basically what I wanted. <laughs> I feel like we started pretty broad, got extremely specific and then zoomed out again. so that's hopefully a useful kind of overview for people who are starting to kind of cogitate and turn these ideas over after maybe watching some of these documentaries, maybe not maybe hearing some of these buzzwords, maybe not. Uh, but regardless we're going to talk more about these topics I'm sure as we go into next year and forever because misinformation and disinformation is never far from the headlines at the moment it seems like but thanks everyone thanks brago thanks josephine thanks olivier
3: peace team
0: awesome that's been one of 200 for another week catch us online at all the usual places rate us five stars give us a review tell a friend about us uh if we're in the, the end days of social media as many people seem to believe then we'll need more uh irl shares so Tell a family member who will hate listen. Tell a friend who will love listen. And um, I don't know, write, write 1 or 200 in chalk on a, a neighborhood wall. See if anyone rolls in from that source. Try something new. The
1: relentless
2: routines
1: The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational you die keeping your glass off full, the relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass off full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate Hey nationalism